thanks to all of you who have dribbled back tonight after the long, brutal summer and uh, back in community. Those of you who are here for the first time tonight, I trust you feel loved. It's very strange for us not to hug. It's very strange for us not to greet you warmly that way. But um, this is that time that we will all remember. So grab your Bibles with me while you turn to Acts chapter 19. My name is Chris, by the way, and that's my wonderful wife, Meryl, for those of you who don't know. And uh, it is just our honor and joy to be in this community and doing life together at this time of our lives and of yours. And Chris and Wendy gave their third daughter away to be married. So now look at them. They've got a smile all over their faces. They are footloose and fancy free. Um, We've been doing a very simple but necessary kind of series, just dialoguing around who, who, who are we. Every church has its own unique distinctives. God loves that. God loves creating that. You look at every child, every family, uh, every nation, every ethnicity. There's so much beauty that God creatively wraps into each one of those things. And conformity is one of the worst enemies of the cross. I think... God never gets us to become like anyone or anything but Jesus himself. And uh, so every church is distinctive. And uh, we wanted to just spend a few weeks looking at what makes us who we are. And we'll land tonight, hopefully clearly, in probably what is one of my life messages. You know, Hosea, the prophet, one of the minor prophets known for the great call that God made on his life. When he said, Hosea, I want you to marry this woman. She's of ill repute. She's a prostitute. But I want you to marry her. And uh, kind of if that's not enough, I want you to accept her children. Oh, by the way, they won't be yours. And I want you to show how someone can love a woman who is adulterous. And her children are the as result of adulterous ways. But I want you to love her with abandonment and show Israel what I feel like. And in the beginning of the book, it says words to this effect that this is the word of the Lord to Hosea. And what that idea is in the Hebrew is masa. Masa means that every one of us has a message or a deed or a responsibility or an assignment. That's what we're all called to do. And at the end of the day, when we have that great audience of one, whatever that looks like, I think it's going to be a remarkable moment in eternity where each one of us puts on display our lives and the kind of movie will roll hopefully not like tonight's that didn't work but the movie will roll of our lives and there will give be given opportunity to see how we lived out our massa this is one of my life's messages and tonight i want to land our series with a conversation around mission that's what I want us to wrestle with tonight. And uh, I will have Sam up a little bit later to join me. And we'll talk a little bit about her heart for local mission and why that came about. So Acts chapter 19. Thank you, David. Recognize that whistle anywhere. Acts chapter 19. The scene is set. A new city which Meryl and I visited. Uh, we visited Ephesus in January. And it was very moving, walking along, very clearly defined um, ruins from antiquity. And I remember sitting there where the theater was, 25,000 seats, just awed by how they built this then. And Ephesus, as you know, was a port city. Now, the thing is, there's no water near it today. They literally had to dredge out a road from the ocean and create a port. It's, it's amazing. Amazing when you think of it as an engineering feat. But Paul arrives in this town and it says this, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus, Acts 19. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, which is a testimony of many who believe today. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied, which is we know is the baptism of water and repentance. It's that moment where it's my first step of obedience where I accept the wondrous redemptive work of Jesus and my first step of obedience is to enter the waters of baptisms. If you were christened as a kid, I'm, I'm glad your folks made that opportunity for dedication. Jesus was dedicated by Mary and Joseph, but then comes that great moment where he walks into the waters and John baptizes him. And so we believe in believers baptism. 
And Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of, of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them were obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul said to them, uh, so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall or the school hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, or Asia Minor, that's the whole kind of Turkey, Greece belt, Lebanon, that little area there. All of them who lived in that area heard the voice or the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Are you ready for that again in our time? I mean, honestly, not, not because I'm a charismatic, I, but I believe that with all my heart, we will in our time see the sick healed, the dead raised, um, demons flying, coming out of people. The demons who work in... Orange County are very sophisticated, but when you come from, as Meryl and I do, Africa, you see manifestations. They are brutal. They are uh, monstrous. They control people in the most dastardly way. It's just more elegant here because the enemy comes like an angel dressed in white. You don't think that could possibly be a very loud car driving past, that that could possibly be the work of darkness, which it is with a tad of sophistication. Okay. What do I want to do here? I was listening to a talk by Tim Keller, who's probably one of my favorite authors, pastors, uh, visionaries in terms of urban ministry. And he spoke about, which brought great recall to me, his parents. And he said for his parents and for him growing up, the meaning of life was to be good. Now, I remember Meryl's parents saying to me, or to us as we were growing up, you know, all that matters, that's a good person. Because being a good person was the high moral value, high moral virtue. That was the meaning of life. Just be good. Now, remember the movie Saving Private Ryan. How many of you saw it? 1998, Tom Hanks. Probably one of my favorite movies, certainly one of my favorite war movies. And the brief storyline was Private Hanks was sought by the authorities because he had three other brothers who had been killed in combat in the Pacific. He was the last living son to his parents. And so Tom Hanks, as a captain, is sent with a crew to go and find him. He's in the front line as the, as the Allies were advancing into Germany and bring him home. And, and it's a profound movie to me of character development, teamwork, hostility, anxiety, some incredible war footage. And uh, spoiler alert, uh, Tom Hanks in one of the final scenes dies protecting uh, Damien, what's his name? Matt Damon. And uh, the, the, the closing moment in the movie, Matt Damon's character is now an old man and he goes with his family to uh, where the beaches of Normandy were and all the many, many crosses that uh, proliferate over the area and he falls at the captain's cross, his tomb, stone, and his wife comes across tears. Every time I see the movie, I cry. That's a, that's a freebie. And uh, he looks up at his wife and he says to her, please tell me, was I a good man? Did I live a good life? You see, to us, boomer, older boomers and the greatest generation, supposedly, that was our meaning of life. If you are a good man or a good woman, you've got the meaning of life. Well, you come along. And this incredible generation, shaped by the philosopher Rousseau, said, no, 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 the meaning of life is not about being good. That's all relative. How do I know what's good? We define our own morality. We determine what is good and what is bad. Actually, Rousseau argued and owned by your generation, it's being true to yourself. I do me, you do you. Well, Freud took that a step further. He said, no, no, no. It's not just being true to yourself. It's being able to express yourself without guilt. So not only must you be true to yourself and uniqueness is celebrated 
and creating your uniqueness and creating your identity is highly valued. But it's to do without guilt. So how many of you know that actually the church has fallen foul of the mantra of the meaning of life is to be true to yourself? Remember the movie Juno, 2007? Uh, Diablo Cody wrote what is really a life story. And she was a young pregnant teenage girl who decided, well, she was decided to uh, have a night of passion with a dear friend. And she becomes pregnant. And the whole journey, the movie, is scripted around her journey of self-discovery. What would she do? What she, would she do with her pregnancy? What would she do with the baby? Um, uh, how would she handle it? Would she marry the guy? The whole movie narrative is around this idea of be true to yourself. Now, added to this. Into that sense of be true to yourself comes the conversations of identity, freedom, meaning, satisfaction, justice. They are high values that your generation deem essential to healthy life and healthy living. But Tim Keller goes on to say that by creating your own identity, it is an impossibly exhausting an anxiously driven assignment. That's why there's endless TikToks, endless Instagram postings, endless social media conversations and images and pictures because the whole time I'm trying to create myself because my culture demands that of me. If I'm known as someone who's got a cute little figure, I've got to do everything possible, even if it means make myself sick, even if it means not eating, because I've created an identity that I am the cute little girl, therefore I must remain cute at whatever price. I'm the creative guy, so I've got to remain creative no matter what. Our identity we create and we carve because we've been sold the cultural story that it is so dependent on us but as jesus apprentices mission is where identity meaning freedom justice and satisfaction coagulate that's where they come together the very idea of mission is where on my identity who i am in jesus i'll talk about that in a moment meaning why am i here freedom what makes me truly free justice Standing on behalf of the oppressed and the poor and the refugee. And then, of course, the very satisfaction of life, which I'll quote C.S. Lewis on in just a moment. So I want to just walk you through five little ideas very quickly. And I honestly hope that somehow in there tonight, something will grab your heart. Something will help free you up. Remember John Stott's famous quote, our culture blinds, deafens, and dopes us so we are held captive by our culture and if you have bought into the idea that either being good is the ultimate meaning of life or in your case that being true to yourself is what will provide meaning you are on for a very frustrating life isn't it sad now can i speak as a dad isn't it sad how much anxiety there is around why why is there more suicide right now, unprecedented numbers, when if all that I've got to do is find, create myself, create my own identity, why is it so hard? Why do I get, I was just reading the uh, Australian Mail, I try and read papers from around the world, of this gorgeous 33-year-old who killed herself Friday. I didn't know her, but obviously the family is very famous in Australia. And what do the parents say? Why? It doesn't make sense. We've got a loving family. Isn't that good enough? She's gorgeous. Isn't that good enough? Why did she go and have to kill herself at 33? I want to argue that maybe understanding the very beauty and wonder of mission is really the big eye driving idea. Number one, I think our Christian or Jesus apprentice is because I can really trust God in giving me an identity. I can really trust God to give me my unique identity. It's not crafted by culture, social media, and what I want to present to be the image. I mean, can I really trust Him? 
How many of you know who Viktor Frankl is? Okay. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist who got arrested during the World, Second World War, 1940s, and was shipped off to uh, one of the concentration camps. In a, in a very dramatic moment, they, they, they took all his papers, he was busy writing a book, and they destroyed it. And, uh, but what he did is he watched the whole time while he was in the concentration camps. And what surprised him the most were who survived and who died. And at first looking, it was obviously the big muscular guy, the big go-to, the big presence in the camp. He's obviously going to survive. And that little bitty girl, mm, I don't know. And he writes in what is a very short little book, but a very powerful book worthy of reading, that actually he was greatly surprised by those who survived and those who did not. And he, and he argues this, and I quote, everyone has his own specific vocation. Now, he's a Jewish man. He's not a Christian. Everyone has his own specific vocation or mission in life. Everyone must carry out a concrete assignment that demands fulfillment. Hear that, you precious, precious people. A concrete assignment that demands fulfillment. Therein he cannot or she cannot be replaced. No one can do your gig. I'm sure you know there are times I'm very vulnerable. That here in this community, I'm sure you know that there are times I want to say, Lord, I'm too old. This is a great community. Love you to bits. But surely they need a 33-year-old who surfs, who's got sun-bleached hair, who's got a gorgeous wife, who, what else, Meryl? Give me a description. Who drives a, 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 a minivan, who's got surf racks on the top, has got a guitar in the back. What else? Um, he's got a dog that follows him around. I mean, what else? An Australian shepherd seems to be the back bay favorite. I mean, you know, you can lay all of that out, and it's like God says, hmm, hmm, very interesting thought, Chris. Very interesting thought. I mean, if I can be a little more vulnerable and say there are times, last Sunday, Dana preached a phenomenal message, and I could hear you laugh at the right places, and you were deeply absorbed in the right places, and then I preach, and I think, this is, this is going to be a great line. Everyone just looks at me, and I think... <laughs> This is not going that well right now. This is not going well. But you see, no one can be a father in this community as I can be for this time. You see, it's a concrete assignment that demands fulfillment. Seeded into every one of us is that concrete assignment, that sense of mission. Therein he cannot or she cannot be replaced, nor can his or her life be repeated. Thus, says a survivor of a concentration camp, Everyone's task is unique as a specific opportunity to employ it. Here in the darkest human hell, with death smelling through every crevice in the camp, some stood strong fighting the very deep desire to surrender, and others became strong. So, I want us to understand, dear friends, and this is possibly the one thing I want you to hear tonight, is the idea of, oh, did they want to go? No problem, no problem. We'll push the pause button. Just push the, oh, wonder they can change it on the video. I don't think they can get through, can they? Great, great. It's the privilege of being in a parking lot. Thank goodness we're not in a train station. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. I'll give you a discount for that. Are you just going to cut, Ty? Are you just going to cut, edit? Well done, everyone. <laughs> well done, well done. Thank you. I <laughs> know, oh, I know. Oh, you have to have a good sense of humor to do this, haven't we? Okay, so what are we saying here? 
every one of us, this is what I want you to hear, is this notion we all have a concrete assignment that God wants us to fulfill that's seated in our heart. Please hear me, those of you in college or just graduated who are fraught with the challenge of, of uh, vocations and careers. What's my career going to be? I'm not sure that's the good question. I think maybe the question is, what has my Heavenly Father called me to do? And He will create me and craft me to do that. He will shape me and fashion me and form me so that I can achieve that. It's the most beautiful thing that makes us so incredibly unique. So much time is spent. I said to my kids, I'm not going to talk vocation or career with you. I'm going to talk calling. I want you to know that God is, can be trusted with your life, what you're going to do and what he's going to do in you to allow that to happen. All right, number two. So that was the first little idea. The second idea is this. In mission, this is a hard idea, but it's a beautiful one, is that we become a slave to Jesus. Now, I know that's not very cool in an English-speaking, first-world, sophisticated world, post-modern, post-Christian idea. You know what C.S. Lewis did in his book on mere Christianity? He wrote a chapter on hope, and he said this. Most people, if they really learn to look into their hearts, would know that what they want and want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. What I really, really, really want, I'm not going to get here. It's like you two singing, Bono singing, still haven't found what I'm looking for. Of course you haven't. He goes on to explain, C.S. Lewis does. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give things to you, but they never keep their promise. He goes on to say, you may want marriage, C.S. Lewis says. And, and then you get married, and it may be a good marriage, but it may not satisfy that thing inside of you. Or this particular job, and you get the corner office, and the big bucks, and the BMW, or the Mercedes, and the house on the peninsula. But then you're like, oh, I don't know, this isn't doing it for me. Or I want to travel, I want to go to Italy, I want to go and have some homemade pasta on one of those great Italian vineyards, and sip wine, and fresh pasta, pesta pasta. And, 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 and sitting with my girl and, and, and delicious uh, Italian wine, uh, slightly fruity, summery with a kind of a, a, little, a, little, a little kind of citrusy twist to it. It's not going to do it. See, that's what he's saying here. Have you found that all the things you really wanted, it doesn't end up satisfying you? He carries on. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give you things, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think about some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us or longing which no marriage or travel, no learning can really satisfy. But the Christian says, and here it comes, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction of those desires exist. I'll read it again. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. The baby feels hungry while there is such a thing as food. The duckling wants to swim because there's some, such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire while there's such a thing as... Exactly, sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The joy of mission is that this is an eternal assignment. This isn't a flippant assignment. This is an assignment that transcends time. It was authored in your mother's womb and after this chapter of our lives ends, we will look back with joy because that seed still remains in us. Why am I so passionate about mission? Because I want you to understand Jesus can be trusted. Why am I so passionate about mission? Because I do believe that inside of us is a satisfaction. And if you don't believe me, go and try out there. Go and see what brings satisfaction. And I think those of us who are a little older would say, honestly, for me, honestly, nothing satisfies like Jesus. If Meryl could stand up here now, she would say, we've had a good marriage, but there's times that Chris has driven me nuts, crazy, angry, all for no reason, of course. Are you with me, folks? 
It's because something inside of us longs for that which is transcendent. That goes beyond the day my life began and the day my life ended. There's no currency to it. There's no value to it. I was speaking to Daryl and Sarah Jump. Forgive me for using their name again. Only because they mesmerized me. Young, well they're young by my standards. Late 30s, uh, 40. And American couple who started a ministry in the stuns. Afghanistan, Pakistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tezakstan, whatever. 400 million people there. More than the population of America. And they've started a ministry there called Live, Die, Silk Road. Well, that in itself is amazing because the title says we have to live and we have to die. We will die here. Why? Why leave America and go and live in a dusty, endless, tireless plain of dryness with people who don't get you, who don't speak your language, who don't love you, who don't hug like you, hug, eat like you? Why would someone do that? Are they just narcissists? Are they self-absorbed opinionists? Are they do-good philanthropists? Or is there something that drives them beyond what is tangible and measurable? Now, the, the climax to the story is this. When COVID hit in March, she was in Germany and he was in Kyrgyzstan. All these months later, she is in Istanbul and he is in Kyrgyzstan because they can't get to each other. And put them on a Zoom call and you will not believe how excited and grateful they are at the privilege they have, she of ministering in Turkey, he of ministering in Kyrgyzstan, and besides being tender, they haven't seen each other for over 200 days now. There is a gratitude for the privilege of living a life for Jesus. Why? Because it's transcendent. Capisce? Okay, number three. To live a life on mission is to be explored through community. It's not just that he can be trusted. It's not just that it's transcendent, but it is to be lived out in community. Now, this is a first for some of you. I'm quoting a rabbi, Soloveitch. Rabbi Soloveitch in his book, The Lonely Man of Faith, said this. Adam seeks a covenantal faith community. This is Adam, Genesis 2. Seeks a covenantal faith community that involves deep and intimate relationships with other human beings and with God. He thirsts for redemption, discipline, control over oneself, and even wishes to be overpowered by God. Religion is not the outset a refuge of grace and mercy for the despondent and the desperate. It's not an enchanted stream for crushed spirits, but is a raging, clamorous torrent of man's consciousness in all of its crises, pangs, and torments. Now, why that text? There is something, dear friends, exquisite about us living out our lives in community. Now, in our modern Western world, you know that. It's very much around, I'm creating my story, this is what I'm doing, and I'm doing it alone. And one of the big idols we have to, or hurdles we have to get across is the fact that much of who you are as a human being and me will only be achieved in community by people who love you, who care for you, who say hard things to you, who stand with you in times of heartache, who will lift your hands when things get tough, who will move your house. A friend of mine has a, leads a church in San Diego, and they have some rules. One of them is you never pay for a babysitter. Parents, do I hear an amen? You never pay for a babysitter because we're in community and the community takes care of your kids so you can have a date. Sorry, those of you students who need the babysitting. You might need another job after tonight. Two, you never move home and you never get movers to come and do it. That's the way to say it. You never get movers to come and do it because the community moves you. They've been going for seven years and those are true. Three, you never have to cook a meal for, I forget now, I'm going to say three weeks, but it might be three months after you've had a baby. You're expected to love the baby and not to worry about food. Someone will come in and clean your house. Someone will come in and provide you with the food. Someone will come and tidy up after you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, isn't that true community? Isn't that what we all long for? And that's the fundamental idea that mission is expressed through community. This is where I learn my little steps, like my grandson over here, we hold his little hands and he kind of takes his first steps and he falls with us. 
because he learns to walk in community. We learn to express our mission in community. It's where I make my mistakes, where I err, where I falter, and we do it in community. Okay. Fourthly, thank you for being so patient, and I'm trying to decide what to cut out because of the little car incident a moment or two ago. Every community, according to Revelation, has a lampstand, Revelation chapter 2. What does that mean? It means that we have, and I said this right at the beginning, we have a reason why we exist. Remember the story that I read to you here. You still with me? Everyone good? Okay, your booties are fine, all of you sitting on the asphalt. You're amazed me. I couldn't. This old body of mine will croak and groan for days afterwards. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Every church has a reason why it exists. Name a church and we'll tell you why she exists. And we've got to hold true to that. And so what happens is Revelation chapter 2 writes to the church in Ephesus. And John says this, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. Now, many people take that to mean, well, I don't love Jesus like I used to love him when I was a little rookie believer. I don't think it means that at all. Meryl and I have been married for 40 years. I don't want her to love me like the 15-year-old I met and started dating. I don't want her to love me that way. I don't want her to love me like the 18-year-old when we got married and went off with me to a little drinky-ding town where I went to officer school. I don't want her to love me that way. I want her to love me the way she is now. She's been 42 for about seven years. I want her to love me that way. See? I, I don't think it's like, well, you know, I want you to love me like a little bitty, itty bitty Christian. No, no, no. I think God wants us to love him as a more mature believer. So what does that mean? I think it means this. The church in Ephesus started with 12 men. We started with five of us. Well, actually, and Meryl and Tion, and then the four interns who joined me and so on. And what happened? They met together with, with Paul, Paul, Porter. I'm trying to rush. It's never a good idea. They met with him every day. And every day they opened up the text, which would have been what? The old, the Torah, the old scriptures. And for two years, he taught them every single day the value of the scriptures, the transforming power of the scriptures. And two things happened. One, all of Asia Minor heard the gospel. Oh, that I would infuse you and me to want to share the gospel with our neighbors. Asia Minor, um, how many people would there be? I did look it up. I think, I think. I think there's 7 million pe people in Turkey. Let's say 10 million people. 10 million people they reached with the power of the gospel in two years. Two years, that's it. And secondly, the city shuddered. The impact on the city was profound. God looked at that and said, that is your mission. Get the gospel out and change the city. Get the gospel out and change the city. And you know what? After a period of time, their radicalism waned. They got mediocre, got average, got boring. No, we don't feel like doing that. Friday night, what are we going to preach the gospel? No, I'm going to Netflix, a couple of beers. See, God says, no, I have this against you. You've lost your radicalism. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You remember what it's like when you first encountered Jesus at that event or that moment where someone prayed for you and the power of God came over you and it was in an instant you could walk away from dope. In an instant you could walk away from sleeping around. In an instant you could walk away from a life of self-absorption in front of uh, the video games or whatever it was. You remember that? Ah, oh, it gets a bit boring. Oh, not another meeting. Oh, for heaven's sake. What a bunch of BS. Sick of that stuff. What does God look at? I think he looks at the tragedy of the loss of passion. What it was like when Jesus was our number one focus. What it was like the thing that was my mission burnt inside of me and you. And we did it with all of our hearts, no matter how hard it was. For us as a community, really, if you had to say to me, Chris, why do we exist as a community? It really is to do three things. One, 
so that all of us grow in our love for Jesus and for his church. She's a beautiful, beautiful bride. I felt so proud, forgive me for personalizing, and I suppose I shouldn't, as I watched Cheyenne walk down the stairs. She's like a daughter to me in that they've been in our home for three years now. And Zach is six foot seven and a half standing next to me. It was one of the questions at the bridal shower. I never got it. Six foot seven and a half standing here, tears. Here is this stunningly beautiful woman walking down the stairs one step at a time. Her dress hidden from sight. We couldn't see what it was like, but this part. And as she came round, kind of twirled around the corner and the dress followed her and the veil behind that, she stood there for a moment, regal, beautiful, stunning. Her dad stood by her side. I nodded and they started coming forward. Slowly, the music exquisite and appropriate. That's the way Jesus feels about his bride. It's... Cheyenne without fault? Heck no. Does she sin? Mm-hmm. But, but you see, the love that's present and tangible is so compelling. And, 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 and that's what we want. We want you and us, of course, to love Jesus and to grow in your love for the church. If we can get that right, whether you're a one-off visitor with us or whether you come for three months or do a journey of years, I really do not mind. I want to know that you leave loving Jesus more and loving his church more. Number two, we exist as a community to call out in every person or to reach in what your calling is. Some of you have had those conversations with me. Now, during COVID, it's on my patio. But we've had those conversations over a beer, over a cup of coffee, and I'm looking, I'm foraging. What is that essence of being? What's that calling tucked in there? And I want to fish it out. Come, I'll make you fishers of men. I will call out your calling. That's why we exist. And then the joy. Uh, well, I hope you don't mind me using you as an example. You probably dozing off at the back there but this is a good moment to wake up but I remember Will sitting with me on my patio and uh, we just started talking and I just watched him come alive with the dream to have a restaurant and to cook for people and to love people through food and he has this big basketball player volleyball player sitting in front of me almost if I could be without being discourte discourteous watching a little guy playing with cars in the sand going vroom, 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 vroom. You know what I mean? Like my grandson's doing now. Vroom, 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 vroom. And I felt Will was vroom, vroom, vroom. He was explaining the passion of his heart, why he's on this planet, is to love people and care for people by cooking for them. See, that's when we've done our job, when we've helped identify that, that thing that's transcendent, before your life began, after your life ended, and why you are here. And accompanying it is the leadership role it takes to get there. Love for Jesus, love for His church. Extract that calling that's hidden inside of you and the leadership role it requires. And then lastly, is to put you on mission. Local and global, not exclusively church planting, but of course we love, love, love church planting. Little communities of love and light in dark and wonderful places. That's why we exist. That's why I'm passionate. That's why we do what we do. That's why we call us to prayer and fasting Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. So that we can do what? Grow in our love for Jesus and His church. We can extract the calling that's inside of every one of us with the leadership element and then embrace the privilege of a life on mission, local or global. Come and join me, Samuel. Can she use that mic? Can she use that mic? So I asked Sam to join me. Sam is one of, yeah, thank you, Ben. One man rent a crowd. Um, Sam is one of my favorite people in this community. And I, and I say that honestly because people warned me. We were still in our house in uh, August 2017. And I remember Haley coming across to me. She said, I've got a friend, Sam, who's coming back from college in Tennessee or something. 
and uh, kind of warned me that when you meet her, you're going to fall in love with her. And I was like, okay, whatever. And uh, well, the thing I heard her before I saw her, I heard her coming through my door and then I saw her. And that's when someone leaned across to me and said, that's Sam. And, and I would have known, I would have known that was Sam. Now, why have I got Sam up here as we conversate around mission? Sam has a huge love for homelessness. Come and stand right up here with me, Samuel. She's getting married soon. I think we should add a fourth issue here, that why we exist is to get people married. I don't know, maybe it should be number four. So Sam, you have a huge heart for homelessness, and uh, the local mission beats inside of you. Why? Give us a little bit of the story that helped shape you in your heart for that ministry. Okay, hello everyone. Um, if you haven't, if I haven't told you a little bit about me, um, I grew up in Santa Cruz, California, so you don't know anything about that place. It's um, just a lot of drugs, alcohol, homelessness, um, and my mom was an alcoholic, dad, drug addict, um, so that was just the situation I was born into. So through junior high and high school, just house hopping. Um, my mom actually passed away from her addiction. Um, and my dad wasn't present because of addiction. So yeah, spent my most of my life from a small age being told like, you are the daughter of an ad of addicts, period, the end, you're not going anywhere, whether it be teachers, even had a pastor one time tell me I was like 15. He's like, I really thought you're gonna die at 13. But I'm so glad Jesus saved you. I'm like, huh, that's awesome. Um, so just like consistently told through my life, um, even after accepting Jesus into my heart, whatever that meant at 15, I just, a lot of people were really nice to me and I was like, yeah, this is sweet. Um, just really told like, you're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. So why do I have a heart for people who, um, I guess homelessness is one aspect of it, but to be honest, yes, that's a part of my story, but, um, think mostly just wanting to invite people into um, a choice to live and live fully instead of just being put in a box right off the bat saying because of the circumstances because of what you've done or because of where you've lived um, you're disqualified um, so I've if I spend the rest of my life reminding people that they have a place at the table specifically with Jesus I think that will be a good life so. so in your junior high, high school years, um, you were homeless for some of that time. Yeah. What does that mean for you? What yeah. did that look like? Um, so my, my brother was given like temporary custody, um, but he was 22 and I'm an alcoholic. So I just, any friends that would take me in, I would sleep on their couch. By the grace of God, honestly, I... I had many places to sleep, but it wasn't it wasn't ever my my home, so I didn't have a home. So when you were 17, you were softly adopted, meaning never official and legally, but a family took you in. Tell me a little bit about that. And where I'm going with the question is you said something to me, I don't know if you remember, what it felt like when they took you into their home. Okay, well, if I don't say it, you can okay. say it, okay. Um, oh, this is what you mean to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want you to know, uh, I asked Chris what he was going to ask me today, and he didn't tell me. So this is all new. <laughs> um, but it's a privilege to share my story with you. Um, when I was the end of my junior year of high school, um, this girl kept inviting me over for dinner. And I was like, yeah, sign me up. Um, finding places to eat was kind of the harder place. So I ate a lot of McDonald's growing up. Um, but this family just kept inviting me over for dinner. And then their daughter went away to college. And I'm like, oh, I was cursed. Sorry. Uh, this <laughs> this girl left. Like, I'm not gonna get dinner. And um, one day I got a call from Susan, the the mom, my essential mom now. Um, she said, Hey, uh, you, are you coming over for dinner tomorrow? I'm like, Oh, they still want me. <laughs> and so about six months later, the entire family sat me down. Um, it was around Christmas time. And they said, what are you doing for the rest of your life? And they've been my family, the closest thing to family since now, since then. 
So what Sam said to me, which is what I will never forget, she said, it's the first time in my life where I had my own bed, I had my own bedroom, and I had a place at the table. You remember saying that to me? That was pretty profound mm. for me. So Sam, uh, homelessness is a huge issue here in Costa Mesa. Uh, what are you doing with homeless people? Is it not scary? I mean, is it not discouraging because there's sometimes so little fruit of endless loving and laboring and feeding. Tell me a little of what it's like to care for homeless people here in, in uh, Costa Mesa. Uh, yeah, um, sorry. Um, it's a huge issue in Costa Mesa. Um, I've been on a journey on how to be a part of this solution. Um, if you don't know, a few years ago, I, um, just me and a friend, a couple of friends started something called the Worth Blankets. And um, we got a bunch of blankets that look a lot like this and we put a bunch of notes in them. And the whole idea, at least what God was putting on my heart was um, create spaces for people to be generous because there's something about being generous that just really shows the love of Christ. And so I would give people blankets to though, though and then go give them to people on the streets. and. Um, I just saw the most incredible relationships built and um, when I didn't have a lot going on there was so much power there was so much power in someone just saying like hey you're worth it <laughs> um, because from literally the earliest memories I had I was told I wasn't um, so I can't give you like this really impressive list of things that I'm doing in Costa Mesa um, I'm not running a food bank or whatever like the thing is that you think but um, I'm making sure I stop and make sure the person knows that they're valuable um, for me personally I'm I think I'm supposed to be going down the road of um, specific substance abuse and addiction um, but I have no idea what that looks like so in the meantime I'm um, like a counselor almost like a career counselor at a women's shelter um it's on pause right now but get to hear these women and how they're just not getting hired because of the record they have or because of the lack of job experience they have and so just finding ways to get them into careers um and then on a on a just now level we're hoping to start a service at um the OC rescue mission. So there's a few things happening. And but, feeding the elderly. Oh, yeah. And yes, and we feed the elderly um, at in the towers over on 19th Street. Um, but what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day level is stopping, um, being okay with being uncomfortable. Because <laughs> let's be honest, it's uncomfortable sometimes. Um, and just not, not, um, passing by somebody without at least a smile um, and I know that might sound silly um, but that's what changed my life I was a really rough kid and um, a very kind family took in the uncomfortable and gave me a reason um, and a place to be welcome so I'm that's what I'm doing wonderful <laughs> wonderful that's wonderful thanks Sam All right, um, we're going to come to the table now. Uh, we love eating together, and we know that in the scriptures, when they spoke of communion, they spoke of a meal. They didn't speak of a piece of bread and wine or grape juice. And uh, with COVID not allowing us to eat together, although we will eat together afterwards, for those of you who've brought food, um, we don't want to miss out on the moment which Dana has laid out so amazingly. All right, I want to get emotional and I'm not sure why. I mean, I don't want to get emotional, but I feel emotional. And forgive the personal note, but with each of my kids, I have three. Um, I've had a very intimate moment with them as we have spoken about the call of God upon their lives.
And sometimes I think it's the, the most important conversation, way more important than morality, and morality is important, way more important than many things. And I want to say to you tonight, as we come to the table of the Lord, I'm asking you to get with Father God, and I'm asking you to let Him readjust the perspectives you've had around career, vocation, identity. You are who you are because of Jesus, guys and girls. Really. I, I, I so appreciate Sam. This is a difficult story to tell. And I appreciate her allowing me to call her out. But understand the fact that when you've grown up, even what you've heard from her life tonight, you would understand the fact that when you grow up, your father, who's still alive, is a heroin addict. Your mother's died as an alcoholic. You've hopped from house to house. You've lived on McDonald's. Your teachers have said you are worth nothing. Your brothers don't care for you. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. How does someone like this have any hope whatsoever? And this is where it is. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was broken for you. This is not a religious moment. This is an intimate moment. Father with child. And I want to ask you to come tonight. I, I, I trust. Or well, how we try to do it, Dee? Kind of in your, your groupings where you're sitting. Uh, I want you to get some bread and take a piece. And I just want you for a moment to reflect. I maybe, thank you. Maybe you can just play for us, you guys. And I would love us just to take a moment of personal reflection and say, God, would you just come? I want to trust you with my mission. I want to. But I'm not sure I can yet. And let's see what he can do in that transition. Father, I thank you for the cross, but more importantly for the, for the empty tomb. Your great and wondrous resurrection that He who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us now. He can quicken our mortal body. He can take the old creation and make it a new creation. And I ask right now that as we take of bread, such a silly little act and yet rich in symbolism, may it be a moment where we put our hands out and say, Jesus, would you take my hand? I want to trust you with my mission. I want to trust you with it. You do with me. Like C.S. Lewis said, I'm a slave to Jesus. If there's something inside of me that can, this earth cannot satisfy, it means it's transcendent. And I want to trust myself into that transcendence. And then the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we drink of it, we're cleansed. get cleansed he takes our sins and separates them from us as far as the east is from the west Psalm 103 old things have passed away behold new things have come the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that was shed when the bread gets you someone from each group can come and get a little piece of bread and a cup in your groups, but can you make it personal tonight, just you with the Lord? That would be so, so wonderful.